If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Much of the attention on climate change has focused on carbon dioxide, but a far more potent molecule plays a big role too, methane. Reducing many sources of it would be easy, and plugging the many leaks of the stuff would actually save money. And the mountainous kingdom of Bhutan, sandwiched between India and China, seems like a tricky place to distribute vaccines. But thanks to its science-minded leadership and advice from some monks, it's had a world-beating vaccination drive. First up, though. Nearly 20 years since American forces entered Afghanistan, President Joe Biden has announced the withdrawal of all troops from the country. I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. The pullout will coincide with the anniversary of the September 11th, 2001 terror attacks that prompted the American invasion. We witnessed one of several U.S. airstrikes just behind the Taliban front lines. Targets apparently included artillery and anti-aircraft units. A decade ago, at the height of the ensuing war, there were 100,000 American troops in the country. Now there are around 2,500. They have an outsized influence, though, serving as an anchor for other international forces that have kept a fragile peace, forces that will now also make for the exit. With the Taliban increasing its pressure and its violence, analysts, diplomats, and Mr. Biden's own generals have advised against a complete drawdown. Nevertheless, he's pressing ahead. We've known for some time that uh, Joe Biden is a skeptic of America's involvement in Afghanistan. Daniel Knowles is an international correspondent for The Economist. In 2009, when he'd uh, newly become vice president, Afghanistan was In trouble then, and he was an advocate for withdrawing most of America's troops and just leaving a small force for counterterrorism. And he lost that argument. Um, Barack Obama, as president, put in an awful lot more troops. And as commander-in-chief, I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. And during his presidential election campaign, Mr. Biden also sort of reiterated his opposition to the war. It's long past time we end the forever wars, which have cost us untold blood and treasure. I have long argued that we should bring home the vast... And so it's no huge surprise that he is planning to withdraw almost all of America's remaining troops from Afghanistan. And he's done that in conflict with the general staff with the Pentagon, who've sort of advised against us as they also did Donald Trump. But the troops are coming out. And so how does Mr. Biden's plan differ from the Trump administration's plan? So Mr. Biden inherited a peace deal that Donald Trump, or envoys appointed by Donald Trump, had struck with the Taliban 
in 2020. And under that deal, America agreed to withdraw pretty much all of its troops by May of this year. And in exchange, the Taliban agreed to stop attacking American forces, but also to give up their links with al-Qaeda and to enter into negotiations for sort of a long-term political settlement with the recognised government in Kabul. And Donald Trump struck that deal. He began withdrawing troops in 2020 and continued and was very keen to carry on withdrawing those troops, even though not many people really think the Taliban have stuck to their deal. They are reported to still have many of the links with al-Qaeda that they had in the past. And there hasn't really been any pause in the violence in Afghanistan either. The fighting has just accelerated. So Mr. Trump kind of carried on withdrawing despite that. And Mr. Biden seems to be sticking to Mr. Trump's policy on that level. And so in that context, with with that violence still going on, what are the risks of, of pulling the last of America's troops out? You know, the war has been accelerating over the past year in Afghanistan. The latest UN figures on civilian casualties show a 30% increase in the number compared to this time last year. There's been more and more fighting between government forces and the Taliban, and the Taliban basically have a huge amount of the country under siege. The government's still in charge in cities and in city centres, but in the countryside they have almost no control and those cities are pretty much under siege. And I think what an awful lot of people are worried about is that essentially a new civil war will come out of this, that the Taliban will decide that they want to take city centres, that the government will begin to disintegrate and that you will have a sort of return to the worst days of the 1990s when Afghanistan was run by warlords a lot of brutal fighting and eventually the Taliban took over and when they took over they sort of imposed their absolutely brutal medieval theocracy and music television and people are worried about the same thing happening again. But for Mr Biden the risk of that is essentially worth it. So I think in the context of American politics it's a completely understandable decision. You know most Americans think that this is a war that's gone on far too long, that too many American soldiers have died and they want to be out of it. And Mr. Biden made it clear in the speech that he gave yesterday that the war has sort of served the original purpose that America went into Afghanistan for. I believed that our presence in Afghanistan should be focused on the reason we went in the first place, to ensure Afghanistan would not be used as a base from which to attack our homeland again. We did that. I mean, from Mr. Biden's perspective, it's an understandable decision, but do you think it's a strategically good one? Well, I think for Afghanistan, it's just going to make things worse. Um, you know, it does look like it could be the wrong decision. Um, America didn't have many troops in Afghanistan left, and the last American soldier to, to die in combat in Afghanistan was well over a year ago. You know, the fighting is still being done by Afghan forces, and those forces are being trained by NATO forces, of which... There is still a decently large number in Afghanistan and and the security of those NATO forces from countries like Germany and Britain and and several other places is sort of guaranteed by the American soldiers and they will probably now leave, which means that you undercut the Afghan forces who are still fighting this war too. And the worry is that we move from a slowly deteriorating stalemate in terms of the sort of military situation to one in which the Taliban really have get the upper hand militarily quite quickly. And and what's the likelihood of that? What do we know about the Taliban's intentions? 
I think what the Taliban kind of ultimately want is difficult to say. You know, they definitely want to be back into government one way or another. I think we can't rule out the possibility that they will try to do that by force. You know, if they get back into government, they will almost certainly do away with certain bits of things that Afghanistan has achieved since 2001. You know, the the constitution, which was written in 2004, and which has sort of legal protections for women, which has seats in parliament for women, which has a whole bunch of other kind of protections for people, will probably not last. The Taliban retain links with extremists in a lot of places. I I don't think it would necessarily go back to the kind of pre-2001 Taliban where, you know, all music is banned and people are sort of murdered in the streets, but it will be an oppressive theocracy that will want to take over. And the future looks awfully bleak, and I think we just have to sort of hope that of an awful lot of possible bad outcomes, Afghanistan doesn't suffer the worst. Daniel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jason. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise. Where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem. Where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist. In 2018, scientists at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration sent a research plane over five American cities. It measured greenhouse gases over New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington. And we measured methane, CO2, and carbon monoxide, as well as water vapor. We had Researchers were stunned by one number in particular. It looks like we're getting about twice as much total emissions of methane in the observations as what EPA estimated. The amount of methane seeping out of those cities was double the estimate from the Environmental Protection Agency and 10 times the amount the agency had attributed to natural gas leaks. Methane emissions are difficult to measure, even to estimate at global scales, but they're an insidious contributor to climate change and reducing them could help slow warming in the short term at relatively little cost. Some people call methane carbon dioxide on steroids. Katrine Brake is The Economist's environment editor. Although we emit much less of the stuff than we do CO2, it packs a much bigger punch on the climate. So over the course of 20 years, one tonne of methane will warm the atmosphere about 86 times more than an equivalent ton of carbon dioxide. A consequence of this is that the gas is responsible for almost a quarter of the rise in temperatures that we've seen since pre-industrial times. And where is it all coming from? So there are many different sources of methane. It's important to point out, first of all, that there are natural sources. So any wet environment, wetlands and marshes, for instance, naturally produce methane. But more than half of today's emissions come from human-related sources. That gets split into various different sectors. Agriculture is actually responsible for roughly a third. Cattle herds, 
sheep, any ruminant basically belches methane as part of its natural digestive process. Rice paddies are also responsible for roughly 8% of human emissions. But fossil fuels are also responsible for roughly a third of human emissions. And a lot of that actually comes from leaks in the infrastructure. So natural gas pipes natural gas production facilities, oil production facilities, all of those leak quite a lot of methane into the atmosphere. And a final important source of human methane is waste. So landfill and any kind of water waste treatment plant, they produce roughly 20% of total human methane emission. And what does it all add up to? How, how much methane is, is up there? So methane concentrations today are more than two and a half times what they were before the Industrial Revolution. The good news is that there's a key difference between methane and carbon dioxide, which is that it lasts much less long in the atmosphere. So when you chuck a ton of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, a lot of those molecules of CO2 will still be in the atmosphere in hundreds to thousands of years' time. And that's why with CO2, we talk about net zero. You need to bring carbon dioxide emissions down to zero effectively if you want to tackle climate change. Otherwise, concentrations just keep rising. With methane, that's not the case. Methane has a half-life of roughly a decade. And so if you cut emissions today, we should see a slowing of the rate of global warming pretty quickly, certainly in terms of the sort of timescales that we're talking about. So within decades, we should see an impact on the atmosphere. So how much would the emissions need to fall instead of rise in order to make a a real difference? So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change have an estimate of that. And they say that in order to keep temperatures between this 1.5 to 2 degrees target that is set by the Paris Agreement, methane emissions by 2050 need to drop to 35% below where they stood in 2010. And there is some policy that's moving in that direction. So the European Commission has adopted a methane strategy that intends to drop emissions by roughly a third relative to 2005 levels by 2030. And with President Biden now in the White House in America, we're also seeing a reversal of previous Trump policies. So Trump had taken apart some of the regulations that Obama had put in place to limit methane emissions. And Biden is sort of reversing the reversal, as it were, and hopefully is going to go further than that. Well, those are the goals, but what are the mechanisms? How do we get methane emissions down? If you're talking about the fossil fuel sector, it's really a very simple case of plugging leaks. So the IEA estimates that roughly 75% of human emissions from the fossil fuel sector can be eliminated using existing technology. And 40% can be eliminated at no extra cost. And that's because methane is basically a product. We sell it, right? So a gas company that is leaking methane into the atmosphere has every financial interest in plugging that leak. Coal mines also leak methane. There are various options for either burning it, flaring it, which turns it into CO2, or using it, for instance, to generate power. The agriculture emissions are even more complicated, and the solutions there are much more piecemeal. 
There's research that's going into possible feed additives that you could give the cows. And of course, we could eat less meat or we could choose to eat artificial meat instead. Well, as you say, a lot of these things are, are quite easily done, and, and in fact, a lot of them not very costly. Why not pile in then and, and try to solve the methane problem altogether? Yes, methane is what's known as low-hanging fruit. It's something that can be done relatively quickly at relatively low cost. That's not to say that if we reduce methane emissions in these quantities that we're talking about, that the climate problem goes away. There is always the CO2 issue behind that. Methane gets us part of the way to a stable climate, but it does not get us the whole way there. Katrine, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Bhutan has become the first country in the world to administer the first COVID vaccine doses to almost all its eligible population. The tiny kingdom has taken the pandemic seriously. To date, there's only been one COVID death. But as in many parts of the world, there was a wait to get access to a vaccine. In January, India generously gave Bhutan 150,000 doses. Then the government got some expert guidance. Rather than rush to inoculate all of the population of Bhutan, which is about 800,000 people, they sought advice from Buddhist monks to begin with, from a monastery called the Jungrat Dratsheng, which is one of the topmost monasteries in the country. Max Rodenbeck is our South Asia bureau chief and is based in Delhi. They were advised, no, don't go ahead and vaccinate everyone. This is an inauspicious period and it's better to wait for a couple of months. This was a time when the rest of the world was rushing to vaccinate everyone as quickly as possible. The important thing was that the very first vaccination dose should be given to a woman born in the year of the monkey by another woman born in the year of the monkey. And so that's how it played out. Authorities waited until the stars were aligned, as it were. Yes, indeed. They received the first vaccines in January, but waited until the end of March to start uh, administering them. The kingdom had all of its adult population register to take the shot and then judged that about 85% of those people really needed the shot. And within a single week, they managed to vaccinate just about all of that 85% of the population. And is that just down to the, the country's small population? It's a small population, but it's a very mountainous country. It's difficult to reach them all. It's due to a lot of things. I mean, for, for one thing, the king of Bhutan, for example, some years ago set up a group of volunteers called the Guardians of Peace, who sort of, they wear orange jumpsuits and they leap into action whenever there's a kind of national project. They're sort of public service volunteers, kind of national service corps that's ready to work for this kind of thing. And in the case of the vaccination campaign, they served a very important role. There's also, you know, political leaders such as the health minister, Dechen Wangmo, who is an epidemiologist with very top degrees from the U.S. So they have actually been extremely vigorous in their response to the COVID pandemic from the very beginning. You know, the strict quarantine measures for anyone arriving from outside, they've actually virtually cut off all tourism arriving in the country. And for example, in March, the king himself spent a week in quarantine just after having visited a few provinces in the south of the country. But having been willing to wait a couple of months to start, why such a focus on speed once they started? Well, the Prime Minister, Mr. Chering, who's really gone all out on fighting COVID, his Facebook page is almost entirely devoted for the last few months to the vaccination campaign, to have everyone sort of worked into a national project to make it all happen at once. There are some other benefits. One of them is, is it does weigh on India itself for Bhutan to have given 
all this population a first dose, it makes a sort of subtle weight on India to make sure that India provides the next round of doses to Bhutan. And how badly had Bhutan been hit by the pandemic to start with? And do things now look uh, much sunnier? Bhutan hasn't frankly been hit very badly. It suffered one single death. They've had quite a few people in hospital, but they've really laid out full facilities to make sure that they dealt with it. But it's not as if this is a country where there are no other problems. It's not a fantasy land, even though Bhutan is a place where instead of having a gross national product, the king has promoted something called gross national happiness. But even so, there are are other problems in the country. During the pandemic, for example, tourism dried up. It's one of the main sources of income. So unemployment has shot up, although it's shot up to a historic high. That historic high is only 5%. You know, other countries would be happy to have that. There's been inflation. The cost of chilies, which is one of the main ingredients of the national staple dish, have gone up to almost $10 a kilo. That's bothering people. And there are a few little scandals brewing about an insurance policy that the home minister took out on his car and apparently falsely claimed on it. He was forced to resign a couple of weeks ago. These little scandals and things have have occupied people. But basically, those are the kinds of problems that anyone else in the world would love to have. And a single death from COVID in a a year of pandemic is, is pretty good show. Max, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason, and Tashi Delek, as they say in Bhutan, which means good luck. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.